those who survive the Great Tribulation, who become believers during that seven-year period, and by the way, it will be the greatest revival in all of human history. The church won't be here. We'll be gone, but God will use 144,000 Jews, two witnesses, and an angel. Why not the church? Because this is Israel's time. God will use Israel as a witness. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in a series titled, God's Prophetic Schedule, and today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon, A Thief in the Night. Pastor Carl will address the meaning and the message of the day of the Lord as he articulates the length, lament, and language of that day. Furthermore, he will show us that between the rapture and the end of the 1,000-year reign and scripture is called the day of the Lord. Please join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, as we continue. You must be born a second time to enter the kingdom of God. The only unbelievers in the coming kingdom are those who will be born to tribulation saints. And what will he do with these unbelievers? He will throw them out into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said the same thing in the Olivet Discourse. Listen to these words, Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And among the parallels, he definitively says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Just like in Noah's day, the people who were taken away were carried away in judgment. Even so, unbelievers at Christ's second coming will be carried away in judgment. By the way, this has nothing to do with the rapture. Hal Lindsey came up with that. As best I can tell through my reading and study in the last 40 years, he was the first one to invent that interpretation. It totally ignores the content, and we will study it when we come to the Olivet Discourse. Luke says it this way in Luke 17. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, again in judgment. The other will be left to enter in the kingdom. In answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the body is, there, are, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, we live in an area where we have vultures, turkey vultures, I guess you call them. And, and when there's something dead, you know it. They're all over it. And Jesus' point is, much as a dead body causes vultures to gather on it, spiritual dead people are assigned to coming judgment. They are disqualified for the coming kingdom. Now, we'll discuss that in very, very careful order in the weeks ahead, if you will stay with me. So even so, when Christ returns, the righteous, those who survive the Great Tribulation, who become believers during that seven-year period, and by the way, it will be the greatest revival in all of human history, the church won't be here. We'll be gone, but God will use 144,000 Jews, two witnesses, and an angel. Why not the church? Because this is Israel's time. God will use Israel as a witness. The church is mentioned some 19 times in the first three chapters of the Revelation. From chapter 4 to 18, you don't find the church at all. Not mentioned once until the end of the book when we come back with Jesus. So people do not want to be left behind when the rapture takes place. 
Um, on the other hand, if you're here for the tribulation and saved, you want to be left behind for the second coming because at the second coming, unbelievers are carried away in judgment. The rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial, before the hour of testing, whereas at the second coming, he comes after the hour of trial. Listen to what Jesus promised in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. He said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We will be kept out because Jesus is coming back to get us. Now notice, he does not say, I will keep you through the hour of testing. He does not say, I'll keep you in spite of the hour of testing. He does not say, I'll keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. I will keep you ek out of the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world. That's never happened. There's never been an hour of testing on the whole world yet, but it is coming. By contrast, in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the tribulation, we read, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This chart also helps us to see that between the two events, there are no signs for the rapture because it is imminent, whereas there are many signs for the second coming. The Lord Jesus could have returned in the apostle John's lifetime could have returned in the Apostle Paul's lifetime. We who are alive, he used the first person pronoun because he lived with a sense of expectation that he could have seen it. And he was right to live with that sense of expectation because nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the inception of the church for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Whereas the second coming of Christ is very much a prophecy-driven event. There is much that has to happen for the second coming to unfold. In addition, this chart also helps us to see something about the timing of the resurrections. The resurrection of believers in the church age takes place when Christ comes in the air, whereas the resurrection takes place at the end of the tribulation after Christ descends to the earth. We just read, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. That happens before the tribulation. But there's another resurrection that will take place after the resurrection. Listen to what Daniel chapter 12 says. Now at that time, Michael, Michael's the great archangel of God. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, he's talking about the Jews, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sounds familiar? Jesus said the very same thing. There's a time of distress that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, the Jewish people, Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life and the others to disgrace in everlasting contempt. So after the tribulation, that's when Old Testament saints will be raised so that they might join the church saints and rule and reign with Christ for that thousand years upon the earth. So we will study that again in depth later on in this series. In addition, there's a difference between the two kinds of bodies people will receive when Jesus comes back. Think your way through this. At the rapture, believers will receive glorified bodies. In the twinkling of an eye will be changed, will become like him, Paul underscores in Philippians. Whereas believers who are alive 
at the second coming, they will retain their natural bodies. The only ones who are raised up in glorified bodies at the second coming are those who've already died or those who died during the time of the great tribulation. But believers who are alive at the second coming, unlike the rapture, they enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. When we are raptured, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we'll be changed and we will be like the angels. Listen to what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We'll not all die. Why? But we will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Likewise, Jesus said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage but are like angels. Please notice it does not say we become angels. So it's bad theology when you hear someone say or you say, well, my daddy's an angel now. No, he's not. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. It doesn't say we become angels. It says we become like angels. How so? And that angels do not procreate and have little baby cherubs contrary to popular artwork. No, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We'll have a glorified body and we will not procreate. We will be like angels. And we will see, however, as the Old Testament affirms, and we're going to study when we come to the millennial reign of the Messiah, that those who are alive during the return of Jesus, they will enter into the reign of Messiah in their natural bodies. They'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. What I'm trying to say is you cannot make the rapture and the second coming the same event without butchering Scripture, without spiritualizing the text, and ignoring some plain truths. So again, here's a chart so we can visualize it. We're in the church age. The next event is the rapture. At the end of that seven year plus thousand years, Jesus will conclude this current heaven and earth and will go into eternity future. At the end of that thousand years, Peter says, the current heaven and earth will be destroyed. He's going to melt it down with fire. People say, do you believe in global warming? I believe in a global meltdown. He's going to totally destroy the planet. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And again, where your loved ones are, that city will come down and sit and become the capital of a new heaven and a new earth. But what I want you to see here on this chart is between the rapture and at the end of the thousand years, that whole time frame in Scripture is called the day of the Lord. And so in that sense, it's a day of horror, but it's also a day of great blessing. And so concerning their questions regarding their loved ones, turn back a page to 1 Thessalonians 4. I know some of you don't bring a Bible because you're new here for the first time and you've never needed one in a church. And I get that. That tells you how sick the church is today. I'm not here to unfold my mind. I'm here to unfold Scripture. You don't need my opinion. You need the authority of the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, but those, but we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who are dead, so that you may not grieve as do the rest, meaning unbelievers who have no hope. They have zero hope. Now, they can manufacture a false hope in their heart. Oh, he is in a better place. No, he's not, not without Jesus. If he dies without Jesus, he dies under the eternal wrath of God. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what we just saw confessed in this baptism. 
When they're immersed and raised, you are symbolically saying, my hope, my faith is in the death and resurrection. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Why? Because the moment you die, while your body is laid in the ground, your spirit, the immaterial portion of you, goes home to be with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So he'll bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's their answer to their question. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're the first to come out. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we, so we shall always be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. So the first ones to go up are those who are in the grave. And we'll be caught up, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than you can blink your eye. In a moment's time that man cannot even measure, we will put on our new resurrection bodies. Now, sometimes when we preach the return of Jesus, we use it to threaten people and frighten people. And I suppose in one sense, you should be frightened if you don't know Jesus. If you've never been born again, because if Jesus came back today, it would be too late for you. Everyone within the sound of my voice, at least before this sermon is over, if you haven't heard it before, you'll know what the gospel is. And if you die or Christ comes back knowing the gospel and you've not responded, the scripture is clear. You will have no chance. The only people who are saved during the great tribulation period are people who have never heard the gospel in clarity and power. We're coming to that. We're going to do a whole sermon on it. And so while we often threaten people or frighten people, understand in the original context, he is saying, I'm telling these things so that you can comfort one another with these words. These are truths of great comfort. So Paul now introduces a new subject concerning the day of the Lord. He has dealt with the subject, what happens when we die. Now he's going to move into a new subject concerning what happens at the end of the age. And the Bible tells us that the great day of God, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. Now, if you're new, there's a bulletin there uh, that maybe you picked up, I hope. You can print it out online. And there's just a few simple points that I want you to get today, and you might want to jot down a few notes. So let's first think about the meaning of the day of the Lord. Let's first think about the meaning of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1 here in chapter 5. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. As to the times, and the word time there is chronos, we get our word chronology from it, and it's used to describe a period of time, and so if you have the new New American Standard, it says as to the period, so to speak, or the seasons, the net Bible says, but then he says as to the times and the epochs, and the second word there is kairos, and it refers to a point in time. In other words, so as to the general time and to the point in time, you have no need of anything to be written to you. They had already been instructed concerning the general time and the particular time, so Paul doesn't really need to say anything more than he's already said. By the way, they weren't alone in their questions. Remember, Jesus was asked by his disciples there on the Mount of Olivet. They said, tell us, when will these things be? He's talking about his return. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then he proceeded to teach them about what would happen. And in the midst of that dialogue, he said in Matthew 24 in verse 36, but of that day and hour, 
No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. The Son didn't know in his non-glorified body. He does now. Nor, but, but, the, but the Father alone. Listen, if you ever hear some preacher, some uh, evangelist on the television setting dates, you should run a mile away. Because no one knows the day or the hour. Dr. Dwight Pentecost was one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And in my opinion, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. John Walford, two men that I was privileged to study under, were the greatest theologues in the last hundred years concerning the doctrine of eschatology. And Dr. Pentecost would often say to us, those who leave little room for mystery leave lots of room for mistakes. And that's true. When you get some date set or it's going to happen on this date, they are going to bring great harm and shame potentially to the body of Christ. Just before his ascension, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And remember, they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He doesn't deny he's going to restore the kingdom. Why? Because he was premillennial. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times, the chronos, nor the epics, the kairos, same words, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So put in today's vernaculars, Jesus is just saying, don't set dates. But regarding the day of the Lord, Paul says here in verse 1, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. He has reminded them that he has already addressed this. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, I want to look at the analogy that Paul uses concerning the day of the Lord. It will be extremely helpful to us, but I think to start, it might be helpful to define some terms. So let's first think about the length of the day. When we think about the day of the Lord, let's first think about the length of the day. And the word day is used in various ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it can refer to daylight, even that way in the Old Testament. That is the hours between the time the sun rises and the time the sun sets. Yom in Hebrew can refer simply sometimes to daylight. Sometimes it can refer to a literal 24-hour day. And so throughout chapter 1, morning and evening, day 1. Morning and evening, day 2. He's talking about literal 24-hour days. Now I know some people have problems with that. They have problems with the fact that God could literally actually create the world in six 24-hour days because that's totally contrary to science. That's what the devil wants you to believe. He wants you to believe in the evolutionary model. He wants you to believe that we've been here for millions and millions of years. That's what our children are being uh, indoctrinated with in our government school systems. They're taught the so-called theory as a science of evolution because they want to distance God billions of years away from his creation so that you don't think he's up close and personal and that he is coming back to hold man accountable. But listen, these long geologic ages are not taught in Holy Scripture. When God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. Adam and Eve were full-grown adults. The trees in the garden were fruit-bearing trees. But you see, we have these so-called apologists today who tell us it's okay to uh, believe in theistic evolution. And so when you embrace theistic evolution, what are you doing? You're putting death, disease, thorns, suffering before the fall. But the scripture is clear. Sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, those things came. Now we've got all those things before sin enters into the world. It's just the opposite of what God has unfolded in his word. 
God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. You say, well, why didn't he create it in six minutes or six seconds or no time at all? Well, God tells us why. He gave us divine commentary in Exodus chapter 20. Listen to these words. Moses comments on the six days of creation that he wrote about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days, and now Moses in his parallel gives us some divine commentary on Genesis 1. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, certainly the concept of a year being approximately 365 days can be established outside of the Bible because that's how long it takes the earth to make a full rotation around the sun. The concept of a 24-hour day can be established outside of Holy Scripture because that's the approximate time it takes the earth to make a complete rotation around its axis. But the concept of a week cannot be established anywhere apart from the Bible. Certainly, God could have made the world in six days or six seconds or no time at all, but he specifically made it in six days to set a model that in six days he created the world, and by example, he wants man to refresh and rejuvenate. And what are most people doing today? Are they refreshing and rejuvenating spiritually? No. 80% of America is not in church this morning. It's pathetic. And so we've seen this horrible event in our nation. Some young man going in and shooting up these innocent little children. What do you think happens when a nation turns its back on God? What do you think happens when a nation says, we don't want you, God. No praise, no thanks. You're not the creator. Evolution is. He gives them over to sensuality. He gives them over to homosexuality. He gives them over to an upside-down mind where people call evil good and good evil. And then you have an 18-year-old kid, and 80% of those kids don't go to church by the time they reach 18. Add to that, you put them in the government school system where they're poisoning little minds, teaching them and the transgenderism and homosexuality and safe sex is all okay and they're defiling their precious little consciences and we wonder what's happening. It's not a mystery. So Holy Scripture speaks of the fact that God created the world in six literal days. A day can refer to daylight, it can refer to uh, a 24-hour day, or it can refer to an inclusive period of time. For instance, Moses uses it that way in Genesis 2-4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. In other words, he's summing up the creation account. He is referring to that inclusive period of time in the day, meaning six days. We use it sometimes that way. We speak of the day of our youth. We don't believe we were a youth for simply one day, but that inclusive period of time in which we were youths. In the same way, the term the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians is not referring to a 24-hour day, but to an inclusive period of time. And there are dozens and dozens of passages that will unfold that for us, not just this morning, but in the weeks ahead. That extended period of time. But with that said, the day of the Lord that is coming mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts from sundown to sundown. Again, back here to our chart. 
if you'll bring it up. The next event is the rapture of the church. And then the Antichrist at some point will come on the scene. Things, as we'll see in a moment, as Paul will say, will look good at first, but then it will get worse and worse and darker and darker and more evil and more evil with wrath coming upon the earth. And then Jesus comes back at his second coming. And the S-U-N in the sky is compared to the S-O-N in both the prophet Malachi and in the book of Revelation. It's going to be a grand, bright, glorious day when Jesus comes back to rule and reign. And it will be a grand day for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, the children of tribulation saints who did not believe in Jesus is Lord. Satan, who has been bound for a thousand years, will tempt those nations to come against God's Messiah and will get dark all over again. And Jesus will shut it down in an instance, and then we will enter into that bright, grand, and glorious eternity, and the day of the Lord will be completed. And so, I want you to think here this morning for just a moment. When we think of the day of the Lord, it mimics a biblical day, it gets dark, darker, bright, gloriously bright, dark again, and then we enter into the eternal state. Now, beyond the length of the day, I want you to think for just a moment with me the lament of the day, the lament of the day. Lest anyone think that when this day is ushered in, everything will be rosy and cozy, that's not true. When it begins, it begins in a time of darkness. It begins at sunset. It progressively gets darker. And when the church is raptured, the people who are left behind will be lamenting. They will weep like man has never wept before. Jot down a few of these passages. Uh, by the way, Paul said, I told you this while I was with you. Well, what did he use? Remember, most of the New Testament had not yet been written. So how Paul could have told them about this awful day? Right from the Old Testament. Jot down this text, Joel chapter 2. There we read, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. God is telling us there's never, ever, ever been a day like this, exactly what Jesus said, exactly what we read in the prophet Daniel. You can take all the holocausts, all the wars, all the famines, all the pestilences, and put them all together, and they don't even begin to compare to that coming seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble, called the Great Tribulation, commencing the day of the Lord. Here's Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he, Jacob, that is Israel, the people of Israel, will be saved from it. Again, in Daniel 12, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 24. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, A Thief in the Night. 
One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.